We're continuing our series today on the other side of yes. Awesome opportunity for you and me to experience what only God can teach us on the other side of yes. And so we've been walking through ways that we can say yes, Lord, and this is what he can teach us. The other side of grace is a great place to spend your life. It's an incredible place to spend your life. Doling out grace, giving grace to others, receiving the grace from God, it's much easier often for us to receive it than it is to give it. But when you've received it in such a fashion that, that you weren't supposed to get it in, you remember it. Let me give you an example. Back when I was a college freshman at Grace College, I worked grounds. I plowed snow in, in the wintertime and mowed grass and drove the dump trucks and the, the backhoes and did a lot of physical work on the campus. And, and one of my responsibilities was, was to oversee a group of guys. And one of the mornings we went to work, we were gathering leaves down on Road to Heber Hill down in Winona Lake. And, and so we would gather all the leaves and we'd put them in a big tarp and we'd throw them in the back of a dump truck that I drove. And then we would take this dump truck out along Worcester Road and drop them off in this field. We had to go back this dirt road in between uh, a tree line of fences or tree line of trees and of corn and then open the dump up and drop the leaves. So we made a couple trips. On our last trip that morning, we had some freshmen with us and one of my friends was up front with me and we dumped the leaves and on our way back, they jumped back in the back of the dump truck. You can't do that today. Of course, that was 150 years ago. You can drive in the back of trucks and you remember the seat belts went like this? That was your seat belt. You put your arm out to the person beside you. But we were driving back and I wanted to get um, the guys in the back, have some fun with them. And so I told Al, who was one of my best friends in college, said, I'm going to get really close to the tree line here and they're not looking. The branches are going to knock them back in the back of this dump truck. This would be a great thing. So I jammed it into second gear. It was a split axle, threw it back into third and it worked. I mean, the branches came, they fell down and I was laughing, Al was laughing. But in the midst of that, a branch had caught the mirror that was on the side of the passenger door, ripped off the mirror, and peeled the metal completely back on the door. So I'm headed back. I have a Bible class, appropriate to have a Bible class after that. And I'm walking. Before we got out of the field, I walked to the other side, and I looked at this door. It was a mess. I mean, the door literally was peeled the whole way back. The mirror was there. And the thoughts, like, I have to go back and tell my boss, my supervisor, that I screwed up pretty badly. But I also had a class up to that. So drove back to campus. I'm working my way back to campus and back to the physical plant. And, and art is out there. And, and so I pulled up, and he was standing out. And I was trying to get my courage up. And I pulled in on the driver's side and kind of waved to him because he couldn't see the passenger side. And I got out, and uh, I said, hey, Art, I got a class. I said, but uh, by the way, I said, man, I screwed up big time. I said, um, I was trying to have some fun, have a prank on the guys, and the, I said, the prank's on me. And he says, well, what happened? I said, well, the door on the other side is completely ripped off. And, and so he kind of walked around, and he walked around with me, and he kind of looks at it, and he looks at it, and he says, ah, he said, you know what, Jim, just go into class. I'll take care of it. I was like, wait, I just tore up a $500 door. And, and, and you know what? He never said another thing to me after that, about that. But it was a reminder because it was a red dump truck and they put a blue door on it. And for the rest, <laughs> rest of my college career at Grace, there was a reminder of God's grace. But God's grace is good. And it happened in the beginning. And because it happened in the beginning, it has been repeated for a very long time. And we're the recipients of it today. 
But let's look at that beginning dose and doling out of grace. Open your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. And ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. But turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to look at how God intercede and brought grace in a mess that took place in the garden. Stand with me as we read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Let's read this out loud together. Ready, read. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You may have a seat. I've been thinking a lot about this passage recently over the last couple weeks. And before the creation existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit worked in harmony together and devised this plan before time, because there wasn't time before God created. So before time, they got together, and the three of them, the three and one together collectively, put this plan together that they would create the earth and heavens with people. And as they're creating this thing called earth and human beings, they're discussing this. I'm not certain how it all played out. God thinks in past, present, and future all in one train of thought. So it's impossible for me to wrap my mind around that. But at some point, they determined and decided that they would allow human beings to be part of this plan that had already put into motion because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been and always will be. They didn't have a beginning and don't have a beginning. But there was a time stamp, as we understand it, when the earth began. There was a beginning in the beginning. But God, as we understand, the three in one doesn't have a beginning. But they had a conversation that they would create this earth with human beings. And we did nothing to deserve a life with God. But he wanted to invite us in. He wanted community. He desired for us to have relationship with him. So he created, as we understand, human beings on planet earth with heavens. Now think about this plan. And as they were thinking about and planning this, sure, they knew down the road that man would sin. But there was also this piece as the earth that they created, there would be no evil or sin or enemies. It would be perfect in every way. And another reality is this, God didn't need us in the first place. Imagine for the first time this conversation that was spoken as they talked about it. I'm surmising here, I don't know exactly how it took place, but imagine for the first time this thought of, well, we're going to create earth, we're going to create human beings, they're going to sin, and we're going to need someone to die for their sins. And so they're having this conversation, and the Spirit and God the Father know, and the Son was willing, he willingly laid down his life and said, I will die. And for the first time ever, the word death, sacrifice, blood, resurrection, was articulated as we understand it 
in heaven. Now imagine, there was no dictionary that the angels could run to because death had never been spoken from the hallways of heaven. And now for the very first time, this plan was about to be put into motion, create human beings that would sin, who need a redeemer, and Jesus would die one day. Who in the world would concoct a plan that would say, you must die in order for this plan to continue? Only God would do that. The gospel as we understand it, death, burial, and resurrection happened before the foundation of the world. Now that's a lot of theology in one moment, but that's who our God is. Grace, however, was surfaced before the earth was created because God knew that man needed grace in order to be redeemed of his sins. But here's what I know. Even though that was the plan and it was perfect in every way, and even though man would screw up and sin, God's ability to clean up things is infinitely greater than our ability to mess up things. That's his grace. It's the picture of me when I saw that dump truck for the rest of my college career. It's a picture of grace. Blue door, red truck. Grace was extended to me. It was a beautiful beginning too. In fact, look at the beginning in verse seven. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. It had to be a proud moment for God. I mean, just think about, you had this plan, this dream, this moment in your life where it is finally in front of you and all the hours that you've lost sleep over, all the work that you've placed into it, it's finally there. And there is man. God formed this man and he didn't have life in him. And it says he breathed into his nostrils and the spirit man stood up and God had made man. It had to be a proud moment. We have him in our lives too. The job that you always wanted, you've prayed about, you worked hard, you went to school, you teamed up, and now you're linking arms. It's your first day. It's like, finally, it's here. The birth of your child, and today is our daughter's Hannah's 25th birthday. Praise God. She was born 25 years ago, and I told her this morning, if I were to choose, and I could stand up all the women in all the worlds, and, and, and I could choose one to be my daughter, I told Hannah, it would be you every time, over and over and over again. And I remember when she was born, Hannah means woman of grace, and we've been praying that name over her since she's been born. We pray the same over our kids too, Joshua and Isaiah. Their names have significant value, and we pray that over them. But her name is woman of grace. But that moment when she was born, I remember at Kosciuszko Hospital, I was a seminary student, and I remember that morning I had labored and taken Hebrew classes and and I was thinking, man, and then Hannah was born. And then I forgot about all that Hebrew. It's like, she's here. And we didn't know. We weren't those who checked ahead or knew. We didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl. And there was this beautiful blonde-haired, toe-head, Billy Idol-haired daughter that was born. We were so excited to see her. But it was that moment that we knew was coming. It's the promises that you make. There's beautiful moments and you're in a wedding ceremony and I'm the pastor often and the bride and the groom, they look at each other and say, I do, I will, I commit. It's before all those messy messages that are passed on each other and those screw up. It's that moment like, I will, for better or for worse. 
It's those moments in life, and that's what it was like. Man was standing before God, and it was a good moment. Perfect in every way. In every way. We all have those moments where everything was just like we had planned. If we could go back and say, can we just go back and get another chance? Because we've screwed up so badly. And then it says this, the man was born and formed and breathed. And then it says in verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And for when you eat from it, you will certainly what? What's it say? Die. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And how true that is. Don't leave a man alone. Holy cow. I will make a helper suitable for him. For the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would what them. What's it say? Name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its what? Name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Incredible moment. I love this picture. It says that God planted the garden. I don't know what that means, but I know when I plant a garden, I love gardening, and we put a garden in every year. It's one of the things that takes me back to my childhood when we had an acre of crops and we used to sell them, and I love going out and putting seeds in the garden and then harvesting the crop and pulling the weeds and taking the rototiller and just and watching crops grow. But it says that God planted the garden. He planted it. And then it says he made it grow. Did he speak? He made trees grow and and they had fruit that was dangling from it. And then he tells Adam, I'm going to bring animals. So he brought animals. He brought birds and he brought them to Adam. You talk about responsibility. He had to name every animal. He had to name every bird. And so he brought them. I just imagine for a moment, God kept bringing animals. Skunk, grizzly bear, anteater, giraffe, donkey. I mean, porcupine, cat. Take that one outside. I mean, it's just this picture of God bringing animals. Elephant, camel, eagle, sparrow, yellow finch. And he would look at, saw the steer. Supper, lunch. There was this picture. He named them all. All the animals he named. It's a beautiful picture. It's just like God had planned. Perfect in every way. And then we read this. At the end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, it says, now the Lord God had formed out of the earth or all the animals. In verse 20, it says, so the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There wasn't any. There was no human being. So it says in verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Now, stop and pause and think about that. He had a surgery in the garden. It says he reached in, 
he grabbed a rib, and if, you know, my mind thinks, so he closed that spot then because there was a place where he reached in and grabbed a rib and pulled it out. He says, rib, you become woman. Like, that's her God. Like, we read over, like, yeah, I can do that. Holy cow, give me a, like, no, you can't. And then it says this. He closed up the place with flesh. So he had surgery in the garden. And then the Lord God made a what? What's it say? Woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. Just picture if you can. This man's all by himself. He had just named all the animals. He's perfect in every way. Crops are growing. Trees, mangoes and fruit and just every luscious fruit that you can think of. Every plant of the ground. No weeds in the garden. Ooh, praise God. And then he creates a woman and he says he brings... The woman to the man. Like, this is just incredible. Like, it's, it's like, it's like kind of movie you want to watch, isn't it? Like, the man meets the woman. And then in the Hebrew, you, you don't catch it too much in the English. You know what Adam does? He breaks out into a song. And look, this is the song he sang in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's this song, first song in the garden was sung. Adam sung this song. And some people ask, why did he call her woman? Because he went, whoa, man. (laughs) Woman. It's a beautiful picture that's happening in the garden. It's just like God had planned. It's just like you and I, all that hard work, all the planning and all those sleepless nights, when a plan comes together, it's everything he had and we have ever dreamed of. And then it says in verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no Shame. It's perfect in every way. When we were in Iraq just a few weeks back, I was reminded the Garden of Eden is in Iraq, and it's not even close to what it used to be. It's barren because of sin. But it was perfect in every way. Man romancing his wife and singing to her and walking through the garden and the the birds chirping and fruit hanging from the trees No sin, no regrets, no pain. Perfect in every way. It's a picture of what heaven is going to be like. It was God's city in the garden. In fact, I would say it this way. Here's what's happened as a result of this. And the sin that happens in Genesis 3. In God's city, the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. While in man's city, the earth, the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. You see, in a Manhattan minute, life as we see it right here will be changed forever because of sin. You see, because when we live for anything else besides God, it will lead to death and not freedom. That's sin in a nutshell, living for ourselves, selfishly wanting something more than we love God. We're about to see, it's, if we could hit the pause button and say, just stop, stop, can we just, can we just cut out Genesis 3? Like, 
But before the foundation of the world, God knew that something needed to happen after Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, there would be sin and grace needed to prevail in order for us to have life. Imagine a world for a second, both of us, all of us, your row, your husband, your wife, your families, your workplaces. Imagine a place where grace did not exist. Imagine never receiving mercy. Imagine never being forgiven. Imagine never being forgiven of your sins and everyone remembering all the wrong that you had always done and even God himself. Horrible picture. But watch what happens. It's beautiful. Man meets woman, breaks out into a song, And then chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will what? What's it say? Die, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was what? What does it say? With her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A trap is set, and that's how sin comes, doesn't it? It's this enticement. It says, here, if you do this, Satan said, you'll become like God and think like God. And I always want to go back and say, Adam, you were there. You were with her. Why weren't you the gatekeeper? Why didn't you say, no, no, no. Why did you acquiesce? Why did you join in? Why weren't you the spiritual leader that says, no, we have a perfect garden, perfect place. Why would we want to screw it up? No, but they don't. They take the trap and the enemy is so good. She believes a lie and the thought of knowing what God knows was worth pursuing I wish he would have spoke truth back to the enemy because he was with her. I always think of this when I think of fly traps that we hang in our house. Those sticky fly traps. Like, I always wonder, like, that first fly, I understand, flies by. Boy, that looks enticing. Could taste good. Dead. And then I think, that second fly, like, maybe he's like, well, I can fly faster than that other one. And he flies by. And he thinks somehow... It won't happen to me. Like, but after like the 15th fly, like, flies got to be the dumbest insect in the world. Seriously. Like, wouldn't you think after like 50 flies that one of them says, hey, if we get too close, we'll get stuck and die. (laughs) But isn't that just like us? Like somehow we think, it won't happen to me. It might happen to them, but it won't happen to me. I'm stronger than they are. Yet when you... Receive that temptation and you act upon it. Our enemy is very tricky and he makes us believe a lie that we won't fall too, that we won't die too. 
John Maxwell said this many years ago, but it's worth repeating. Sin takes you farther than you're willing to go, costs you more than you're willing to pay, and keeps you longer than you're willing to stay, doesn't it? I cannot imagine the heartache our God felt at this moment when for the first time he had ever witnessed sin in his creation. And I personally believe that we neglect to understand how sin breaks the heart of our God. If we could just pull away and say, man, this just grieves the heart of God. If we could just hit the pause button in Genesis chapter 3. What if God, when that happened, said, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I'm done. He could have. He could have said, why we even waste their time? They've only been here a few days and they've already taken the bait. Why didn't he just wipe it all out? Because he's a God of grace. And grace enters the scene for the first time in creation. You see, we are prone to wonder and prone to leave the God we love. But the good news is this, is we can cheer up because you and I are a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could ever be imagined, ever could imagine. His grace takes us and covers more than we could ever screw up. Like Adam and Eve, I would say this. Each time we sin, we're choosing to be our own deity. We're placing ultimate trust in ourselves, not in our creator and savior in the Lord, not in saying, we should be saying, God, you know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for me. So I'll trust you and your word. So what happens? What do they do? Verse eight, verse seven, they, they, they cover their nakedness. Verse eight, they hide from God. It's amazing what takes place. Now look at verse nine. It says this, it says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. See what he's doing? Pass the buck. He blames her. Then the Lord God looks at the woman and said, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. Pass the buck. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. We still do that, don't we? When we sin, we keep it a secret. We hope no one finds out about it. We pull away thinking that what we've done is too bad for God to ever forgive and we retreat in our sin. And if we don't seek his forgiveness and his grace, we go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in depression. We pull away thinking God could never forgive me of that. And so they run, they hide, and they pass the buck when finally called to the turf. But God knew this would take place. How do I know that? Well, look at Revelation chapter 13. Just keep your finger here. Last book of the Bible. John was on the element of Patmos. God knew that they were going to sin and he still created the earth as we understand it. 
but he knew that man needed a a remedy called grace. And this is what took place. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. John is having this dream on the island of Patmos. He's looking forward to eschatology, future things. He's talking about the beast and the antichrist. And he says this in verse 8. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose name have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Unsaved. The Lamb who was what from the creation of the world? Look at that again. The Lamb who was what from the creation of the world? Slain. Now let me help you understand that. It's incredible, beautiful theology. John is saying this, that before the creation of the world, before Genesis 1 and 2, the Lamb was slain. Like, like my mind doesn't conceive it. Here's why we don't understand that. Because we're not like God. We can't think like he does. God thinks in past, present, and future in one train of thought. So before the foundation of the world, before he breathed man into existence, it says, God died. Jesus died. He was slain. So when they were having that conversation about earth, Jesus was slain. Grace had already been implemented, hear me out, before earth was created. That's how much God loves us. And that's the picture that we have here. So watch what our God does next. Look what he does. Verse 9, he pursues them and asks this question. Here it is. Where are you? I love this picture because it's a picture of grace hunting them down. Because God's ability to clean things up is ultimately greater than our ability to mess things up. It's the picture of the prodigal son that's running and hiding and being chased down by the father. It's the mom or dad who graciously goes looking for the rebellious child. Can you picture God in a voice of grace? Where are you, Eve? Where are you, Adam? He is pursuing them in grace. Not vengeance, but grace. They are fearful, and they're hoping they don't have to face him because they know what they have done. And by the way, hear me out. The same God that did that for Adam and Eve is chasing you in arms of grace too. There is nothing that you will do or have done that our God won't forgive and extend grace to you and me. Amen? You see, he put it into motion in Genesis 3. It's the person saying, oh man, I need to find them and let them know it's going to be okay and I forgive them instead of letting them reel in guilt. And the same way that God is chasing us down in grace, the enemy is accusing them as they run. Sinner, sinner, I can't believe you did that. This is the fifth time you've done it. Oh, God will never love you. How can you ever teach a Sunday school class? How can you ever lead your family? How can you ever say you're a believer? You could never be a good husband. You could never be a good wife because this is part of your past. You did that and you think you could be a squadron leader. You did that and you think you could be part of a women's ministry. It's the voice of condemnation and it's the voice of Jesus saying, saved by my grace, saved by my grace, covered by Jesus' blood, you are free to live. That's the picture. Oh man, that's good. That's who our God is. And that's what he was doing in Genesis 3. He pursues them because they're hiding. 
And then in verse 15, look at verse 15. Genesis 3 and verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And it says this, he, you know who he is? Jesus. Jesus will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You know what God did to Adam and Eve and he told the serpent? He promised them a savior would come. And instead of condemning them, he tells the enemy that Jesus will crush your head, big boy. You might have just won this battle here, but I win the victory. And then he tells him this. And with this promise, he reminds Adam and Eve that he has not given up on his plan. He promises that one day he will send someone who will strike back against the sin that threatens his creation and his people and his plan. And one day in the future, things will be the way they were intended to be in the beginning. You see, God could have allowed them to suffer dreadful consequences of, because of their action, but instead, grace, grace, grace. Jesus will save them of their sin. Not only does he do that, they got fig leaves on them. They're covering, they're trying to hide from their sin. In verse 21, it says this. So the Lord God calls them, or chapter three, verse 21, that he says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Don't miss out, because this is significant. God covered their shame through killing an animal as a sacrifice. And he reminded them that a perfect sacrifice would come one day and his name is Jesus Christ. You'll cover your sin in the Old Testament, but when the new covenant comes, when Jesus comes, listen, he'll be the one that sheds his own blood. We don't need bloody sacrifices anymore because Jesus went to the cross. God ensures that his unworthy servant is made fully aware of his undeserved deliverance by killing an animal but reminding them grace, grace, grace. You know, the final picture of grace is often overlooked in the Bible in this passage. In fact, many just kind of overlook it. There was another element of grace. Look at chapter 3 and verse 22. It says this, and the Lord God said, the man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live, how long? What's it say? Forever. So the Lord God did what? What did he do to them? Banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, you and I could look at that and miss this. We would say, well, he did get vengeance. He kicked them out. He said, you didn't take care of the garden. I don't trust you anymore. You screwed things up. It says that he banished him out of the garden. Then it took cherubim with flaming swords. Listen, you don't get back into a garden with cherubim that have flaming swords. He kicked them out. But here's the good news. That was an act of grace. 
You might say, how is that an act of grace, banishing them, throwing them out? Because if they would have walked back into the garden and eaten from the tree of life, they would have been locked into the eternal state of sin forever. You see what he did? He said, I'm not going to lock you into sin. There's a redeemer that's coming called Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And he's going to spare you of the sin here. And not only that, the tree of life appears again. You say, oh, it does? Yeah, yeah, it does. Look, look. Look at Revelation. Now turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Keep your finger here in Genesis. This tree appears again. Like, whatever happened to that tree? Because if they were protecting it, like, the Garden of Eden is still in Iraq. Like, if that tree's still there, it'll lock people into a state of sin forever. What happened to that tree of life? Genesis 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down the middle of that great street in the city, of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of what? There it is, there it is. It finally reappears. That's where it's at. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any what? The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need of of light, of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever and ever. And you know what happens? When you and I are in the eternal state, when we've been raptured, when the second coming of Christ has taken place and the battle of Armageddon has already unpacked, when we are in eternal state, the tree of life is in the eternal heavens, you and I get to go and eat from this tree. And guess what happens? It locks us into eternal state of perfectness forever. That's grace. That's grace. That's incredible grace. And only our God would be willing to offer that to us. So what are the lessons that you and I can learn on the other side of grace and only not grace? Here's some things that I can learn and have learned. Jesus didn't say, come to him and I will give you a to-do list to get cleaned up. He said, come to me and I will set you free. I don't find nearly as much comfort anymore believing that God will work through me as I do that God will work in spite of me. (laughs) Like, I'm a sinful person. I'm grateful for his grace. It's not that he works through me. I'm grateful that he works in spite of me. Here's what else I know to be true. God redeems our lives because it's in his nature to do so. We do not live in fear that our life hangs in the balance of whether or not we make a wrong move. His grace is as good today as it was in the garden. What else can you learn on the other side of grace? You no longer have to live for the applause of man. It only matters what God thinks. I don't have to earn, 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 and do, 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 and climb, climb, climb. God's grace levels the ground. God's grace picks me back up. And no matter how much I've failed, and no matter how much I regret, God cleans up the mess. And if man remembers it, it doesn't matter. It only matters I'm working for the applause of God. 
Here's what else I found to be true. Most people need love and acceptance more than they need advice and vengeance. You know what else I know to be true on the other side of yes? I want to catch people in the fall. I want to run towards them when everyone else is running away and say, grace, grace, grace. You say, the more I recognize the ugliness of my sin, the more I can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. You know what else I know to be true? The gospel is good news that God doesn't relate to us based on our accomplishments for Jesus, but Jesus' accomplishments for us. He did all the work. You know what else I've learned? That love delivered when judgment is deserved has been and will always be the most powerful agent of real heart change. Blue doors on a red dump truck are grace. And you know what else I would personally want to be known for? When I stand before God and he looks at my life at the bema seed, at the judgment seed of Christ, the bema tas, I would love to stand before God. And he said, Jim, you know what? Boy, you gave out a lot of grace. (laughs) I would love if this community accused me and my family accused me and you accused me of doling out too much grace. Because our God does it every single day of our lives. Grace, grace, grace. Oh, Lord, help us today. I pray, God, that we would be people of grace. I pray that we'd be agents of grace. And I pray, God, that we would come to know you in a new way today. That you could have ended it all, but you didn't. We're grateful that you sent Jesus. It's a perfect sacrifice. The gospel in a nutshell. We're a mess. We couldn't fix ourselves. You sent Jesus to fix us. Thank you for that grace. Help us to live out grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you next week.